This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Opportunity to visit with Lori Parker, the executive director of First Care Women's Clinic, who's here with us this morning, this week, um, and took the opportunity to to tour their their facility and look at um, all that they provide and the way in which they provide it uh, to Cobb County residents and residents beyond Cobb County in one of the areas that has uh, one of the highest percentages of abortions in the state of Georgia. Lori, can you wherever you are this morning? Can you stand if you're in here? I hope she's in here. There she is. Okay, so Lori's going to be here. Um, Thanks, Lori. She will be, and I'll remind you guys toward the end because I know how fleeting our memories are. She will be out here in the main foyer um, with some First Care Women's Clinic things and to answer any questions and just meet you and talk to you some uh, about this issue. This morning, we joined hundreds and hundreds of churches across the United States dealing with the topic of the sanctity of life. Um, And I know that anytime there's a group this size, um, we have women present who have have undergone this and this has touched personally. You chose at some point in your background um, to have an abortion. And I just want you to know that the love of God for you, the compassion of Christ towards you, the forgiveness, the restoration, um, God's ability to bring beauty from ashes is not limited in your life because of an abortion. There's nothing that you and I do that drives out God's love and His care made available to us through Jesus Christ. So I want you to hear that from my heart, and you'll hear more as we go on this morning. But what I, what I want to do is just briefly pray for us, because I, I know the environment I'm in. I know that the vast majority of us this morning are already going to agree that abortion is, is morally wrong, criminally wrong. Uh, But there seems to be this great gulf between that stance and maybe voting a certain way and actually being involved in any way in this issue and the issue of of children who are born and are placed into foster care for adoption in our nation. And only the Holy Spirit can move us as 21st century Americans to sacrifice anything Uh, with regard to our own convenience, our own dreams for our lives, to get engaged and to make a difference. But that is the call that God gives us as His people. So let me pray and just ask the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do. Father God, Almighty God, Creator and Sustainer of all life, I pray this morning that You would send Your Holy Spirit in a unique and powerful way into this place, into our lives, as you promised to do when your people gather. God, let us not be people who hear your word, who come under the authority of your word, walk away from it, and go on with our lives without practicing what it teaches, as one who walks away from a mirror and forgets his or her image. Holy Spirit, stir our hearts, speak to us this morning, give a direct commission, a call to each one of us this morning on how we can be a part of the solution to this huge area of truly systemic, codified legal injustice in our nation today. God, I ask this, the glory of your name, for the good of your people, God, and in the name of justice in our nation today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in, in 2018, 2018, um, there were just over 42 million abortions worldwide in that year alone. That's seven holocausts in a year, friends. Seven holocausts. There are uh, certain Scandinavian, Western European nations whose abortion rate is almost 100% for Down syndrome children and other children that ultrasounds have shown to have certain uh, highly potential issues in their lives. 40 
$1.2 million. That's what uh, has led J.D. Greer, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, to declare this in our own nation as the greatest moral tragedy of our day. The greatest moral tragedy of our day. It is, I believe, the greatest instance and issue of true systemic injustice for all the ways that we use that phrase in our nation today. Legalized, codified, constitutionally protected killing of the least of these of the least of these. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that not only victimizes the preborn persons, but victimizes the women that are at points of highest vulnerability. Some of you may remember uh, in 2010 uh, that DEA and elements of Philadelphia uh, PD raided uh, an abortion clinic. Of course, they're, they're always disguised differently. This was the, the Women's Medical Society in West Philadelphia and ended up subsequently arresting a man named Kermit Gosnell. Kermit Gosnell, who has the uh, insidious reputation, and rightly so, of being uh, America's most heinous serial killer. In 2011, Dr. Gosnell, his wife Pearl, and eight employees of the Women's Medical Society of West Philadelphia were charged with a total of 32 felonies and 227 misdemeanors. In 2013, Gosnell was found guilty of first-degree murder of three infants because it didn't bother Gosnell if an abortion was botched to go ahead and kill them after they were delivered. He knew what we know to be true is there's little difference between a child in the womb at that age and a child outside the womb. So if you're going to kill them in the womb, why not kill them outside the womb? In fact, his employees said that uh, 40-some-odd percent of the abortions they performed were late-term abortions past the time when Philadelphia law and Pennsylvania law allowed abortions to be committed. He was found guilty of first-degree murder, as I said, of three infants, involuntary manslaught of Karnamaya Monger, who was a, a Nepalese immigrant who died having an abortion there not long after she got here, and nobody even cared. She was so insignificant in our social standings uh, that nobody in Philadelphia that was made aware of her death even cared to investigate it. 21 felony accounts of illegal late-term abortions and 211 accounts of violating Pennsylvania's 24-hour informed consent law. What's I find uh, amazingly ironic, and there are a couple of great books on this case, and, and great when I mean very informative about the dark underbelly side of the abortion industry. There's also uh, an excellent movie that was made um, that portrays very factually what happened at this time. What I find most ironic is that Gosnell waived his right to appeal so that he wouldn't face the death penalty. What a coward. What an evil, evil coward. He was found guilty, as I said, and received a life sentence without any chance of parole, plus 30 years. I don't get the plus 30 years. You know, it's just uh, legal knees humor, I guess. But he'll be there, and maybe we'll start counting the 30 years once he's in the ground. The grand jury's account, uh, portions of it were taken and published in a Washington Post article in 2013. A combination of that and the Washington Post writer said this, Gosnell had a, a simple solution for the unwanted babies he delivered. He killed them. The report said, he didn't call it that. He called it ensuring fetal demise. Just as abortion is no longer abortion, it's a matter of uh, reproductive rights, women's justice. Now, the way he ensured fetal demise was by sticking scissors into the back of the baby's neck and cutting the spinal cord. The Pennsylvania Department of Health has records as far back as the 1980s documenting Gosnell's dangerous practices the grand jury found. For decades, Gosnell did not staff his facility with licensed or qualified employees. He never properly monitored women under sedation. He botched surgeries and then failed to summon emergency help when it was needed. Now, I don't share this with you or remind you of this if you followed this case at, at that time. Uh, to, to paint a picture that this is normal 
in all abortions clinics, all abortion clinics. It's not. But the end result of this is the same for all abortion clinics. Pope John Paul II in a great speech and ended up being written that he gave in March 1995, coined the phrase culture of death. Because he was talking about the fact that we've looked back on certain instances in society and have come to the realization that this is, is morally wrong and repugnant in a society. And we're not going to do that anymore as we look back at history. And then he saw us sliding back into some of those practices. He said, the growing and widespread, growing and widespread cultural movements toward normalizing abortion and euthanasia as individual rights rather than moral crimes. There's a growing and widespread cultural movement. We've seen this across our lifetimes. Choices once unanimously considered criminal and rejected by common moral sense are gradually becoming socially acceptable. And as I said, he doesn't just throw abortion in there, but, but euthanasia, late in life choices to go ahead and end your life because maybe you're facing a terminal illness. But I want to ask you a question this morning. What would it look like for us to be known, for, for us as a church to be known as a culture of life? A culture of life. What would it be like for us to be known for having a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered culture of life? We are pro-life, and I use that word carefully because that's largely a political word now, a political phrase, but we are pro-life from womb to tomb. From womb to tomb. What biblical basis do we have for protecting the life of pre-born persons, persons still in the womb? I think the, uh, I think the argument over whether or not they are persons by any reasonable, intelligent, educated standard has been settled now. We know that they feel and they flinch and they pull back from those needles inserted into them for certain forms of abortion. We know they feel pain. They have their own fingerprints, their own DNA, their own hearts and brains and so on and so forth. What would it look like? And what biblical basis do we have for protecting the life of preborn persons, persons still in the womb. I want us to look at this, and, and I want to say before we do, we're going to be in Psalm, we're going to start in Psalm 139, a much beloved passage um, in the church period throughout church history, but also a much beloved passage when it comes to understanding God's relation to preborn persons, preborn persons. But I want to say this too. When I say from, from womb to tomb, I want you to understand that you can't say you're pro-life if all you care about is stopping abortion. To be pro-life with any kind of biblical background is to be pro-life. To be for the, the thriving and the dignity and the respect of human beings from the womb to the tomb. It means that you care about all forms of injustice, that you speak out in all areas with regard to marginalized people. Let's look at Psalm 139, Psalm 139, as we begin answering this question around the biblical basis for protecting the life of preborn persons and then what it would look like for us to be a culture of life, a culture of life. Psalm 139, beginning with verse 1, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me, you know me. And the psalmist isn't just saying, you know, about me or you know of me. This is an intimate kind of knowledge. You know my thoughts. You know my fears. You know my victories and my failures. You know my past. You know my sin. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word was on my tongue or is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. That's terrifying to me. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it, Lord, completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. 
If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. In the loss of a loved one, you are there. When we can't conceive, but we yearn to, you are there. When your children have gone and you feel out of control and worried about them, God is there. When you've just gotten a word from your doctor that you never expected to get and a diagnosis that causes you to tremble in your soul, God is there. Whatever you're walking through, whatever season of life, whatever has been done to you, whatever you have done, God is there. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Verse 13, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. It's a description the psalmist is given for the womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All Now listen to this. Don't miss this. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Huge theological implications come from this. Beautiful theological implications about the sovereignty of God. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Now, the latter part of the passage we read is one that is, is commonly invoked and commonly uh, read and gone back to with regard to this idea of abortion. But it is very clear in the psalmist writings here that God has an intimate relation to preborn persons in the womb. And, and we know, right, we live in, a, we live in a, an age of 40 ultrasounds. So we can see a lot of what is going on in there. And we know even though the psalmist says, hey, you knit me together in my mother's womb, like it, it, it's, he's not saying that if you got the ultrasound at just the right time, you'd see God's big divine hands in there going to work, right? This bone and this ligament and this joint and these tendons and, and putting it all together. He's simply saying there is a mysterious way in which God is present. God is the author. God is, is intimately, personally, specifically involved in the creation of life and the formation of life in the womb. You cannot read these verses and come up with any other sustainable, honest understanding. You simply cannot. God is involved. From the very moment of conception, in the moment of conception, any of you who've ever struggled with infertility will know that men and women can make love, but they cannot make life. There's a mystery to when and how life comes. We can't create it any more than we can drop a seed in the soil and water it and cause it to grow. Right? Some of you can't even keep things alive that you pick up from the store that are already grown. There's a mystery to how life works. But I want you to understand that, that this involvement of God in the life of preborn persons in the womb is not just something that the psalmist understands. In Galatians chapter 1, or, or yeah, Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is giving a, a kind of statement about his calling, his former way of life in Judaism, his calling into salvation in Christ, his understanding that the Jewish Messiah that he was looking for, he just didn't believe it was Jesus of Nazareth, was indeed Jesus of Nazareth, and his call to be minister of God to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. 
We'll pick up in verse 13 because I want you to see uh, what we're going to see in context. We'll read verses 13 through 17. He says to the church in the region of Galatia, you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Whatever Paul did, he did intensely. He did with passion. He was all in, all the time. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. He was rising up within the institutional religious hierarchy and life that he'd been raised in. Verse 15, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, and that is the best translation. Some translations will say from birth. That's a looser translation than what we find here. The most accurate way to understand the original text here is exactly how it's translated here. Set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. And later I returned to Damascus. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that his understanding in light of coming to know Jesus Christ as a risen Lord and Savior, as the prophesied about one, as the coming and long-awaited Messiah, his understanding before God is that God had actually set him apart in his mother's womb had set him apart not only for his salvation, but for his calling to the Gentiles. And then Paul says, at one point in his life, at just the right time, God was pleased, God was delighted to reveal the truth to him, to blow away the blinders in Paul's heart and mind so he could see for himself the truth of God. In Christ, the Apostle Paul understands it. But the Apostle Paul is, he's reaching back and he's understanding himself in light of a long tradition of Jewish servants who understood this same thing. If you look at, if you look at Jeremiah chapter one, this was Jeremiah's understanding of his call. Jeremiah chapter one, verses four and five. The word of the Lord I hear you guys flipping, so I'm going to give you just a minute. Let you get there. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. If you and I will let this sink in, for some of us, this is going to disrupt our current theology of how God works. But you better let it sink in because this is God's revealed word. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, who formed Jeremiah? Who ultimately was responsible for Jeremiah's life and formation in Jeremiah's mother's womb? God. God. And before that even took place, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and God says through his word, I already knew you. I already knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. See, Paul is, he's understanding himself in light of this long tradition of God calling men and women to testify to the greatness and the glory of his name. Come fully and understood fully through Jesus Christ to the nations, not just the Jews, not just Israel. They were the people who were supposed to carry the message. And the word of the Lord tells Jeremiah that God formed him in the womb, that God knew him before he was born, that God set him apart and that God appointed him as a prophet to the nations. That's a whole lot of stuff happening in the womb. Are you with me? A lot of stuff happening in the womb. It's not just Jeremiah, though. Look at Isaiah chapter 49. Turn back just a few pages to your left, to the book of Isaiah. One of the Everests on the plains of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. 
The prophet Isaiah writes and says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Can we agree that you cannot, whatever else you can have, you cannot have a theology, a biblical theology of personhood without agreeing that God is intimately involved in the creation of life and the formation of life in the womb. That these are preborn human persons that are given by this talking, calling, knowledge, understanding that all characterize personhood. Do you, do you remember that John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth leaps with joy at the news of Mary's pregnancy and Jesus? Elizabeth doesn't leap. The baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps. There's no other way to understand this for us as Christians. And this is tough, and I'll often hear, uh, I have often heard across the years, um, older, uh, long-time believers, uh, older generations who are frustrated some at the, at the pervasiveness of younger generations, and they're what they'll call kind of wishy-washiness on this and, and other topics. And I think that's a fair complaint. But to be fair and to, and to take generations scripturally, all of our generations have issues, right? There's no generation that just gets it all. Typically, older generations will struggle with loving and caring for and showing grace and redemptive respect to women who have abortion, to immigrants, to other things. Now, not everybody, right? But generationally, that's characteristic. But they're firm on this. They're grounded and rooted and unmovable on this. Younger generations, you can almost flip that, right? They have no problem extending grace and love and dignity and respect to all persons. No matter who they are, no matter the color, no matter how they got around them or came to this nation or not, whether they had an abortion or not, but they really struggle with drawing these lines where God draws them. So this is, this is not about a generational thing. This is about being biblical, what I want to do now is I want to briefly go over four, four arguments, four lines or statements that people that are typically uh, pro-choice will say, and I want to briefly respond to them. And then I want to give you four ways that I believe those of us who are regenerate followers of Jesus Christ, men and women of God, ought to be responding to this issue in our life and in our day. Now, I would also point to you um, because Williams does a whole lot better job than this, a little bit more thorough uh, in his book than I'm going to do today and has really uh, given me a lot to think about, a lot of good stuff. Thaddeus Williams, who is a professor of theology and uh, philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, Bible University, has written an excellent book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And there is a forward by John Perkins, that, that great leader, uh, along with Martin Luther King Jr. during the, the era of segregation uh, in the 60s and 70s. has a wonderful, I would tell you the book is worth the cost just for Perkins Forward and just for the appendix in the book. But if you want a little bit more of what you're about to hear, I, I would uh, I'd really refer you to William's book. You can get it um, inexpensively on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. So um, four pro-life arguments. One, you'll hear this, uh, pro-choice, I'm sorry, pro-choice arguments. You'll hear this a lot. Without legalized abortion, right? Without legalized abortion, women will be forced to undergo abortions in the kind of pre-Roe v. Wade environments that were characterized by unsafe back alley butchery. That's largely simply not true. Before Roe versus Wade in 73, 90% of abortions were performed by licensed physicians in good standing with their state medical boards. That's before Roe v. Wade. In 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade, 39 women died from illegal abortions. Now, that's tragic. And we should mourn that. That often the people around a woman in a moment of highest vulnerability uncertainty and fear are pushing her and encouraging her 
to get an abortion and 39 died. But as research shows, and I don't have time to cite all this, but it's there and I can send it to you if you want to email me after. Research shows that even people that were proponents at starting pro-choice organizations then readily admit they conflated these numbers by the thousands to make this argument. They just flat made up numbers. Thousands, four to 5,000 a year, they would say. That is simply not true. One other thing I would say is that this, uh, this pushes toward a false conclusion that society must make it safe and legal to kill unwanted people. Do you realize how absurd that is? What we've got to do is just make sure it's clinically safe. Easy and legal to kill those we don't want. I would encourage you to think about where, where that stops in a society once you get to the point where you can say, yeah, let's safely, legally kill people that we don't want and do it en masse. Another pro-choice argument is, well, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't abortion be legal in cases of incest and rape? What about that? The first thing you and I would need to do is acknowledge the tremendous, tremendous pain endured by women who have been victims of incest and rape. We need to acknowledge that. We need to sit with them in their pain. We need to tell them about a God who loves them and whose redemptive love has no boundaries. We need to tell them about Jesus who came to make all things new. We need to love them. We need to pray for them. But I I would also say that we need to point out graciously to to those who who might say this, uh, that this is not really a reason people support abortion. Because less than 1% of abortion cases annually come from cases of incest and rape. Less than 1%. This This is not really why they want abortion to be legal. Uh, Because you can always say, and don't do this mess on social media, all right? Nobody cares. Nobody has ever changed their mind based on somebody arguing with them politically or morally on social media. This is relational kind of stuff. But just ask. (laughs) I'll often ask, well, well, okay, I'll I'll concede you that. Let's say 1%. Would you then agree that the 99% of abortions each year are morally wrong? They will not concede that. And so it it demonstrates very quickly the fallacy of this as as an argument. It's not real. And I will tell you this. How the pregnancy, how a pregnancy is conceived has no bearing on the value of human life. How a pregnancy is conceived has no bearing on a human life. I'm not saying it's not incredibly painful. But we know, and there are readily available stories out there of men and women whose, whose Moms with the support of people around them chose life on the other side of incest or rape. And their children are grateful that they did. Third, and this is one you often hear, is that having a baby places an undue economic burden on many women leading to greater poverty. Not just their poverty, but greater poverty in society. Um, Baruch Brody of Baylor University comments on this idea, and he says, in an age where we doubt the justice of capital punishment, even for very dangerous criminals, killing a a fetus who has not done any harm to avoid a future problem it may pose seems totally unjust. And what he's saying is, even for a moral, rational thinker, just on on the level of rational thought, This would seem to be completely absurd, this argument that this child, and you can broaden it out, Williams does this in his appendix on this, uh, whether you say, well, the the, the child's going to have a major handicap or deformity or issue in their lives. What Brody says here would still stand up. He goes on to say, there are indeed many social problems that could be erased simply by destroying those persons who constitute or cause them. But that is a solution repugnant to the values of society itself. If the fetus is a human being, the appeal to its being unwanted justifies no abortions. The question in every one of these arguments is this. Is that preborn fetus, is that preborn child a human being alive? Does it constitute life? Yes, it does. Things that aren't alive don't grow. If there's no life there, there's no worry there. It's not going anywhere. I would also say that this confuses eliminating a problem with finding a solution, right? 
Um, let me just say in what it would be kind of a, it's kind of a coarse illustration, but uh, let's say we've got issues with homelessness. Uh, Kate and I, um, our oldest son went to a Falcons game a couple of weeks ago. And as we were driving down toward Mercedes-Benz Stadium, I know it will shock some of you to know, we saw a lot of homelessness. A lot of homeless people just out. Homelessness is a problem. If you look at it from a, like I say, a strictly rational societal view, you'd say, man, homelessness, it's dangerous. It drives down the values of everywhere. Uh, anywhere where there's high homelessness, uh, buildings are degraded. Uh, the people don't take care of themselves. They're often sick, diseased. Uh, uh, they have uh, mental instability. Now, you could round all of them up and kill them. I mean, that was a solution in past cultures at times. And in doing so, you would eliminate a problem, but that's not a solution. Are you with me? That's not a solution. Let me move on to the last one here, four. And this is the one you will almost always hear. This is the loudest, and this really gets at what this is all about in a highly idolatrous individualistic society. That a woman's body, it's a woman's body and she has a right to do with it as she pleases. My body, my choice. It's my body, it's my choice. It's my body, it's my choice. The fact is, can I just say this bluntly? The fetus is not part of the woman's body, but attached to her body in an intimate way. The fetus is not a part of the woman's body. An unborn person in a womb is not part of that woman's body, but attached to that woman's body in an intimate way. We wouldn't believe during a pregnancy that a woman has two hearts and two brains and four arms and four legs. Would we? No. No. But if that growing baby inside that womb is part of her body, then she's got two hearts, two brains, lots of kidneys, four arms, four legs, and so on. And I, I would also say this, if you're, if you're saying this and you're making this argument, are, are you saying that, that killing a human being is simply a matter of location, right? That as long as it's in the womb, it's okay, but take it right outside the womb and, you know, it's not okay. That argument from location or argument of location is absurd. And any of you who've had little babies or been around them know they can't sustain their own life outside of the womb for a long time right? Any moms go through some exhausted early weeks and months after giving birth because that baby was so selfish it always needed you constantly. I'll say this too, our bodies are not fully autonomous under the law in other ways, are they? I don't have the legal right yet in our nation anywhere to just pump as, as many drugs into my system as I want and that be fine underneath the law. I don't have the right with my body to physically assault other people or murder other people. My bodily rights end where harm to another begins. Your bodily rights end where harm to another begins. And lastly, just on this, so we could say so much about this, I would say um, this, my body, my right, my body, my choice argument uh, it is always cast as kind of a, a liberating, uh, a, a woman-empowering kind of thing. Can I just say, it is not a liberating thing for women. Here's what research shows, that 64% of women who sought abortions said they felt pressured by others to do so. Over half thought abortion was morally wrong, even though they were going in to seek an abortion themselves. Less than 1% said they felt better about themselves after. 78%, this is typically 77.9, but I'm just going to say 78%. 78% said they felt immense guilt afterwards. And 59.5% said they felt like, quote, a part of them had died. This is why to be, quote, unquote, pro-life means that you and I can't just care about the preborn child. We have to care about the women who are being pumped through this industry for profit in our nation. We have to care for women who've gone through abortion. We have to. So what does it mean to be a culture of life? If we acknowledge in Psalm 139, in Galatians 1, in Jeremiah 1, in Isaiah 49, all the way back to Genesis 1, that God is the author and sustainer of life, that even in the womb, it is God who's choosing to create life and God who is intimately involved in the forming 
of preborn persons in the womb, then we have to be involved. We can't just say we're pro-life. We can't just say we believe in the sanctity of life or that we want to be a church that's known for having a culture of life. We have to do something. Let me give you four things. First, speak out. Just speak out. And again, and I only say this because I'm on social media too. I don't mean on social media. I mean where it can make a a difference in relationships, in friendships. How about write or email or call or visit or all four. Your congressional representative and senators, I looked up mine and we know there's a political divide here. But I'll tell you, Voting Republican is is not enough. We know that the Republican platform is pro-life and the Democratic platform is pro-choice. They've been there for a long time. But you and I kid ourselves if, if we think we're pushing our party instead of our party using us. They know how to get wide swaths of blocks of votes. And I'll tell you, Republicans have done not much with this issue since Roe v. Wade. So I know for me in my life, like uh, for for a political candidate to choose life, to be pro-life, that's a starting point to get my vote, but it's not all they need to do. If the only options to me are two immoral, destructive morons, I don't feel compelled to vote for either one. And if you would tell me if I don't vote, I can't complain, I, I, I would delight in engaging in a conversation with you about that. I am not bound to vote for morons voted by two national parties in the United States if I feel like both are detrimental to the fabric of our nation and to human thriving. I'm bound to Jesus Christ, not to a political party. But I know when I look up mine, my representative is a Republican, my two senators are Democrats. So I know when I engage them, it's very likely that my representative is going to be pro-life and that my senators are going to be staunchly pro-choice. But I encourage you to speak out. Cardinal Roger Mahoney said that any society, any nation is judged on the basis of how it treats its weakest members. The last, the least, the littlest. The last, the least, the littlest. Let me give you a word from Proverbs about this. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Let me pause before I I go on. Who else would be better described as those who cannot speak for themselves than the unborn in the womb? We can't hear their cries as their bodies are torn apart in abortion clinics. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all, all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Throughout Scripture, God has a tremendous heart and a serious line of judgment for those of us, a serious heart for the down and out, the marginalized, the poor, those without a voice, those whose voices are are not equal in a society. And he has a serious line of judgment for those who are in positions of power, for those who are in positions of power in a nation toward how they treat such people, you and I have got to speak out. Preborn babies in a womb can't speak for themselves. We have to do it, but we need to do it where it matters. We need to do it where it matters. And it is mattering, and it is making a difference. Many of you know the Supreme Court ruling that happened just a few weeks ago with regard to the, the heartbeat law in Texas. And I'll tell you just so we know, like, let's, let's say Roe v. Wade gets overturned in a number of years. That just means states are able to, that doesn't outlaw abortion. You with me? It's a great step in the right direction because we can't rest on this issue until the codified, legalized constitutional right to kill unborn children for convenience is gone in our nation. Until then, we stand before God as a systemically, systematically unjust nation. So speak out too. Get involved and get, get involved before an abortion happens. I mean, there's a reason that we had the video from First Care Women's Clinic. We have Lori Parker here, the director there. 
Now they provide care before. They provide care for women who've had abortions. They provide care for men. They provide counseling for women. They provide medical care. There are so many things that first care does. But if you and I want to be pro-life, it's far more than saying you're pro-life because you vote a certain way. That doesn't pass the test. We've got to get involved. And I can tell you right now, they need people to come and to volunteer, right? It's not just churches where people haven't come back to serving. It's kind of across the nation after COVID. They need volunteers. They need some employees. Get involved before an abortion happens. Third, get involved in the foster system and get involved caring for women post-abortion and for those who choose not to abort, right? One of the amazing things about us as church people is for, for years and years and years and years now, we have rightly spoken out against abortion. And it has only been within the last few years that the church kind of as a whole in our nation has said, oh, well, if we're going to speak out against abortion, then we're going to also have to be involved with orphan care in our nation as Scripture commands. We're going to have to get involved in the lives of children who come into a system and are cared for largely by the state. And we're going to roll out other options for this in the coming weeks. I hope that in two or three or four years now, we have multiple ways that we as a church are regularly involved across the board here. So that members and attenders who get involved here, they know it. They run into it in both four years on our website, in our app, everywhere. And they're able to make a difference in this issue in our nation. Fourth and final, demonstrate the same passion and care for refugees, immigrants, and other marginalized groups in our country as we do about this issue of abortion. Pro-life, caring about the sanctity of life, being a culture of life from the womb to the tomb includes caring about, advocating for, praying for, speaking up for the dignity and the respect of all people, especially those who have the least amount of voice and influence and power in a nation. That is our obligation and calling in Christ before God. I'll tell you something that, that some of you will push back on, and that's fine, but um, it's been a journey in my own life. Uh, when it comes to understanding society and understanding the role of government that, that God has given government, I'm definitely a, a border security guy. I think nations have a right and a need to, to regulate the coming and going of, of people uh, for the order in the flourishing of their societies and others. However, as a Christian, when people make it to the land that I'm a citizen of, it's my responsibility to care for them. It doesn't matter how they got here. It is the church's responsibility to care for immigrants, legal or illegal. That doesn't matter before God, right? Because we're the people of Christ. All of us are illegal when it comes to coming uh, as God's children. None of us had a right. And in God's grace and mercy through Christ, we've been received. Being pro-life is far more than a single issue. Although that single issue, I think, is readily settled. It's just about action now. Jerome Lejeune says this, to accept the fact that after fertilization has taken place, a new human has come into being is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. The human nature of the human being from conception to old age is not a metaphysical contention, it is plain experimental evidence. Lejeune is saying, basically, it is understandable just on rational, common sense from a human being. As the band makes their way back up here and we prepare to respond um, in worship, I, I want to encourage you. Obviously, justice matters are huge and weighty when the womb is the tomb. But as we've been talking about all the way up into the growing discussions, we've been kind of drowned out by a bunch of other discussions right now uh, on euthanasia, we've got to engage in. Part of the reasons why, um, why we're doing LM Institute here is hopefully to help all those who will engage it become far more biblically formed and theologically formed than culturally and politically. It takes work because you and I drink in hours and hours and 
hours of cultural beliefs and political beliefs for every hour that we're taking in biblical ones. It's very easy to be upside down here. But if we're going to be a theologically formed people, if we're going to be biblically formed around issues of justice and goodness and life, then we've got to care about the whole thing. Womb to tomb. Let me ask you to stand this morning. As Jake comes to lead us in worship and we respond and reflect before God, I really challenge you to ask God this morning, God, what would you have me do? And then listen, what would you have me do with this issue? And then listen and let God speak. As we sing, we invite any of you who are are baptized believers with us this morning to step out at, at any time and make your way to one of our communion stations. We've got two in the front, two in the back. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, kind of make your way off to the side and And just spend time with God as you receive communion. As you remember that you've been united in the broken body of Jesus. So that you might be made whole by the grace and the glory and the goodness of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we discuss weighty things. God, as we discuss issues of biblical truth and of theology, issues where faith meets the public square. God, where your word meets the laws of our land, I pray that you would guide us. Give us wisdom, God. Give us compassionate courage. Lord, I pray in this room right now for those who've been touched personally by abortion. God, that they would know your love. God, that they would know you, the redeemer of all things that we experience as human beings. God, the one who's able to forgive and to restore and to bring wholeness in our lives, no matter what we've done or what's been done to us. Move and stir in this place, God. Make us a body who doesn't just believe Abortion is wrong, God, and that your heart beats for justice and human thriving. But let us be a church that is engaged in actively bringing justice about human thriving and wholeness in our society. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.